Glory to God. It's great to see some old friends and some much older friends. And then some brand new friends, some people I've not had a chance to meet yet, but I'm glad you've come tonight. And I believe it'll be time well spent. You know, anytime you come into the presence of God, God has an agenda in mind. It unwraps and it unfolds for us as you walk into it. He often doesn't show you details very far ahead, but he shows you enough to get you in the groove so that you can really embrace the best. And I believe the Holy Spirit has some dynamite things, powerful things to reveal and do and accomplish in us. Here's what we've all come to discover. You come to find out that one word from God really can revolutionize your life. One concept, one idea, it comes alive, it means something, it addresses an issue or an aspect of your life right now, and man, there is something God does that is alive for the moment. Praise God. Man, I love this. And I love you. I love pastors. And uh, Brownie, always great to be back. You know, we met Brownie in 1976. How long ago was that? Let's not do the math. <laughs> but here we all are still, still preaching it, still doing it, still believing it, still walking in it. And uh, you go through storms, you go through bright days, you go through every kind of issue, and you find out that the Word of God is still true, faithful, and alive today. And God's ready to do business in our life at any moment that we're ready to receive. Say it out loud, I'm ready. I'm ready, I'm ready, now. I'm ready now in the name of Jesus. Jesus. Just takes a decision, really. And I believe you just made it. Did you just make it? Yes. If you hadn't already before you came, this was a good moment to do that. Praise the Lord Jesus. There's no question about it that we're in the most dramatic days, maybe in our lifetimes, possibly in all of history. But certainly for my lifetime, I look back on a variety of things. We all have our own histories. But my goodness, these days are wild. <laughs> and depending on what gets your attention the most, they're either the, the darkest days or they are the brightest days. You have to decide what you're going to focus on and what you're going to pay attention to so that you can embrace what God really wants to have happen, even in troubled times. Now, look, there's no, no hiding the fact, and we all get it, man. There, are, there is trouble around us, and it is on the, I was going to say the pages of our newspaper, but how many get a newspaper today? <laughs> okay, we have one. But we do get the news, we think. And there's, so there's no question that it is the wildest of times and things seem to change, you know, on an almost daily basis as to how the tide is going. It's coming in, it's going out, it's rolling and whatever's happening. But here's the thing about the walk with God, that in the midst of all of these things, we have a great deal to hang our faith on that provides the stability and the definition for the days that we're in so that we're not being defined by the culture, we're not being defined by the popular opinions or unpopular opinions. We're being defined by who we are in Christ. And that's really my sole message tonight. That was the very end of what I planned to get to so we could stand and be dismissed. <laughs> But we're not going to. Uh, guys like me are going to take a while to get to dismissal. But I want to read a statement that Jesus made, of course. Man, we're going to read from the Bible so you really feel like you're in church. I still use the Bible. I think it's a good decision I've made. You realize not everybody does, but... <laughs> all right, did that get you? <laughs> That's all right. That was cool. <laughs> It was a moment of, of affirmation. Thank you. But right at the end of Jesus' ministry, I'm just going to jump right into some things because at the end of Jesus' ministry, He gathered His disciples together and you know they had what we've called the Last Supper and uh, they, they gathered for a time where there would be fellowship, there would be covenant 
actions that they would take, a covenant meal that they would participate in. And Jesus would spend much of that time teaching many of his final teachings that really summarized what he had been unwrapping and demonstrating and unfolding to his disciples for several years already. And he wanted to encapsulate these things. And he talked about the days that they were in. He talked about not letting their heart be troubled. He talked about the role of the Holy Spirit who was to be given and would enter into a new dimension of ministry that they had already heard about but really weren't aware of how in deep it would go and how it would all play out. Not yet, but Jesus still described it. He taught it to them. He wanted them to hear it because the words that he spoke were alive and wanted, he wanted and had to position these things for his disciples. They didn't know what they were headed into, not like Jesus knew. They didn't understand what was going to happen in just the next few hours, that Jesus was about to be arrested, that they were all going to come under pressure. They were going to feel the threat of darkness like they had never felt before in their lives. And they were going to watch their master Jesus be taken and things happen that they really had not seen coming. Jesus had told them it was coming, but they still hadn't really seen it. They were shocked at what was about to happen. But at these moments that Jesus is talking to them, and even as they left that last supper and they went off to the place of prayer, Jesus continued to teach them and he prayed for them. And I'll read a few things from those times in just a moment. But they were hearing these things and wanting to understand, like you do. If you're like me, you listen to some things and you say, boy, I know I need to be grasping every bit of this. And they would have been hungry to grasp it. And yet knowing that some things were slipping past them that they weren't quite laying hold of. But that was going to be the work of the Holy Spirit to help them reignite the very things that Jesus said. And uh, you can have that confidence and comfort yourself that if things slip past you we have the promise of the Holy Spirit that he would lead us and guide us and reveal truth to us and really be like a tour guide of what truth is all about to show you how life can be lived to the max praise God but I want to focus first on a statement Jesus made right at the end of this teaching from John chapter 16 and verse 33 something you're familiar with, I know, but this is so strong and I think vital for the days we're in right now. Because here Jesus said this, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Everybody say peace. peace. That becomes one of the most valuable things you'll ever really embrace, is the understanding that his words will bring you peace. This is... The New Testament, obviously written in Greek, but this word in the Greek really reflects the meanings of the Hebrew word shalom, which is also translated peace. And that really has a lot of depth to it. It is a very inclusive word, as this word is. And one, one study of it, you come to realize that God's peace provides the reason to embrace life where nothing is missing and nothing is lacking and nothing is broken in your life. If it has been, peace has come to bring healing, restoration, hope, wholeness, and every aspect of life. And Jesus said, I've spoken these things to you that you would have this kind of peace. His word spoken has power. His word spoken has power. His word spoken releases power and he was releasing in these words power for peace to prevail for them you know that word rhema is such a dynamic word and it is translated the word and it really refers primarily to a word spoken so Jesus really is kind of describing for us here in just this statement that he has released a power filled word that has the kind of power in it that will bring itself to pass if it's allowed to. 
He said, I've spoken these things, all the things of these previous chapters, but it would include anything that he's spoken. And really for us, it includes everything you find in God's word. The things God has written, he has also spoken. So we take his written word and allow that to become a spoken word to us. When that angel of the Lord came to Mary and told her about the amazing thing that was about to happen. I know I'm regressing. We're going to finish at least one verse tonight from the Bible. We really will. I promise we will. When that angel of the Lord came and spoke to Mary, one of the things he said, he said, With God, nothing will be impossible. That word nothing, as common as it is, no thing, a compound word, in the original Greek it's also a compound word, that comes from this idea to, be, to have no rhema is what really is translated nothing. No rhema or no spoken word of God will be impossible or without the power to bring itself to pass. So when Jesus speaks this word to us, his disciples, but also we take it as our word from him. I mean, it's in red letters in my Bible. Yours too, unless you got cheated. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. I just seem to have parked on that for longer than I thought I would, but... I believe it is a rhema word for some people right this minute. That you're in turmoil, trauma, trouble of some type that has stirred the pot for you and is causing undue pressure against you. I speak a word to you in the name of Jesus. That what he speaks brings you peace. And that it floods to you right now in Jesus' name. Let's lift our hands just for a moment and receive that. I just feel like there's a presence of the Lord to do exactly that for us. To impart a power of peace. The provision of divine Holy Spirit peace. It transcends understanding. It's greater than what we wrap our head around. But even the things that we have been troubled by, that we have put our thoughts to, God releases peace like a river to flood through your soul. Be at peace in Jesus' name. Let that calm confidence from the Holy Spirit wash through you and fill you with that substance in Jesus' name. Drink it in. He said, these things I've spoken to you that you may have peace. Then he finalizes this entire teaching with this. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. Have you proven that to be true like I have? We understand. In the world we'll have trouble, tribulation, turmoil, a variety of things that will come at you. Maybe once or twice. Today. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, be courageous, be joy-filled. There's various ways to say it. I have overcome the world. Glory to God. Say it out loud. He has overcome the world. Because he has, so have I. I've overcome the world. This isn't just cliche stuff. I know you've had these thoughts before and said these things. This isn't new. But there's something fresh and alive when you announce it right this minute. It comes alive and it addresses the current situation. We're not looking at the way it has been. We're looking at the way it is. Be of courage. Be courageous. Be of good cheer. Be joy-filled. I have overcome the world. Now when you really think about the condition of things in the moment that Jesus said that, this becomes even more amazing because Judas had already done his dirty work. He had already betrayed the Lord. He had already sold him out. 
And there was a mob of religious leaders as well as Roman soldiers already gathered that were on their way following Judas' leadership to find Jesus and arrest him. It was the darkest time, really, in Jesus' ministry history of any time. All of hell was descending on Jesus at this point. You see, what you, you have to remember is that Satan had been waiting for the one that had been declared in Genesis 3.15 that would come and crush Satan's head. And for all of human history, Satan had been waiting for who that person was so that Satan could destroy that person before that person could crush his head. And of course, being as deceived as Satan is, he believed he could do that. It's amazing that the deceiver is the most deceived. When you really realize that, you realize that makes total sense. He has believed all of his own lies as well. But all through history, he had waited for the one until the moment that Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism from John and the voice of God the Father from heaven came and said, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. All of heaven heard that. All of hell heard that. All of those standing there heard that. It was the announcement of Jesus for who he really is and who he was in that moment and Satan now understood there was no mystery about it. This is the one that was declared all those hundreds of years earlier who would come. And so from that point forward, all of hell descended on Jesus. And he was the only one, really, for the most part, that was getting the attention of the devil. And it had culminated now after these three years of ministry, three plus years of ministry, into these moments where Satan was certain that he had Jesus exactly where he wanted him and that the trap was sprung. Again, the deceiver is the most deceived. He didn't see the trap that was actually being sprung. But it's, it's a dark time. The pressure is on. Not only outwardly, but inwardly, trying to squeeze Jesus by these pressures of, of darkness. And in that moment, Jesus said, Be of good cheer. I have overcome all of this. Glory to God. If he can announce that kind of power and confidence with the kind of certainty he had, in the kind of pressure situation he was in, that is the demonstration of the sample sun helping us see how we can function in the same days of darkness. If you face it, he's faced it also. He declared it. You declare it. The same outcome results. That's a simplicity of a life of faith in God. We're not waiting for... Now follow this all the way through. We're not waiting for God to sovereignly move and change everything so that we don't feel the pressure. We are embracing what Jesus has already sovereignly done on our behalf so that we can dispel the pressure. That we're a part of what God does. We're walking with Him, not chasing after Him. Does that make sense to you? Circumstances and pressures around us don't have the authority or should not have the authority to define our life. In fact, nothing should define your life but what God has said about you and your meditations on what He has said regarding you so that what He has said is something you really buy into and believe. You know, it's one thing to realize that he said these things, but you got to buy into this. you got to really embrace it and, and say, yep, that's, I'm taking that for myself on purpose. You still happy? So I want to read something further to you. 
Another statement that Jesus made following this, also from the Gospel of John. Because the next chapter, chapter 17, is John's account of what Jesus prayed in that moment. And he prayed it for his disciples, but he also prayed this full prayer of the entire chapter nearly of John 17. He prayed it for all who would become disciples or believe the words of those disciples. And so in essence, he's praying for every disciple of Jesus that has ever lived, and that includes you and me. Thank God. So what we have here really is a powerful prayer in red letters from Jesus praying for us. Lord, send somebody to pray for me. Okay, well, John 17. Jesus himself has done the praying. Yeah, we're grateful for all the others that do pray. Don't take that wrong. But this is so powerful. And I just want to focus on on a couple of verses of this. And I'm going to use the message translation for this from verse 15 and 16. Where Jesus said to the Father, he said, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. Say guard them. I love that concept that God is guarding us from the evil one. God has set up a hedge. You know, he, even Satan described the hedge that was set up around Job. And he described it. He says, you put a hedge around Job to protect him. And Satan, of course, didn't like that. But that really helps describe how it really is for us. He does put up a hedge around us. God does. In order to protect us. And Jesus prayed that exact thing. That you would guard them from the evil one. You have God's word for it. That he is on guard. So that Satan can't take advantage of you. But now here's the issue. You got to allow him to guard you. You got to stay in the place that he is guarding. You can't just run off and do some nut crazy thing. You nut. And have the angels chasing along behind you, which is a silly idea, but uh, to guard you. Anyway, you get it. But here's the line I want you to catch. After he said, but that you guard them from the evil one. And then he says this, they are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. Oh, I want that to soak into you. Because that is what Jesus described about every disciple. We are not defined by the world. There's so much confusion in these days about what does define us. But we're not defined by the confusion. We're not defined by the past. We're not defined by our failures. Let me tell you, you are not defined by your mistakes You're not defined by your traumas. You're not defined by your disease. You're not defined by your accidents. You're not defined by whatever failures have happened or a divorce that's taken place. You're not defined by a death. You're not defined by the culture or the system of the world around you. These are not what defines you. You are defined by who you are in Christ. And he said, just these words, they are, you are, no more defined by this list of things that I've given that helps to define what the world system is all about. You're not defined by that any more than Jesus was. That's easy to believe that Jesus was not defined by the devil or by pressures or past or wrongs or failures. That's easy to believe that. Of course, this is the son of the living God. This is Christ himself. But let's just get real about where this goes for us because we are the body of what? Come on, jump in. We are the body of Christ. At one point, Jesus was the only body of Christ. Christ, the anointing of God. That's really what Christ means, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. That anointing resided only on one person. That was Jesus. He is what some have called, and I love this term, the sample son. He was the demonstration of who God was designing people to be. And he demonstrated what it was like to be born of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus was, but as you are now also. 
born of the Holy Spirit and made free from the dominion of sin. Jesus was free from the dominion of sin. Now in him, you've become free from the dominance of sin over your life. That nature of sin has been born out of you and you've been born into a new nature. Now these are big issues, man. And you know, you, you reserve this for a Saturday night crowd. Because Sunday morning people can't always take it. You know, we love Sunday morning people. Uh, don't tell them I said this tomorrow. But some of them are a little bit wussy, you know. I mean, we love them. We're glad they're here. I mean, that is so brutal. And now that I've said it, I wished I hadn't. But, okay, there's the bell. Time's up. I guess I'm over. How rightly timed that came. Back to the Bible, let's try that. So Jesus said, they or us, we are no more defined by the world than Jesus was defined by the world. Paul reiterates the same idea in Colossians 3.11, also in the message translation where it reads, from now on, everyone, and of course he's referring to everyone in the body of Christ, that's the context. Everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. That's us. You make Jesus the Lord of your life, you are included in who Christ is and what his anointing is all about, born into you and resting upon you. Now think about this. Let's go back to that moment with John the Baptist. It's, that, that to me was one of the most pivotal moments uh, in, in history and in, certainly in Jesus' life. Because in that event, you have the Father and Son and Holy Spirit all wrapped up in a single moment of revelation to understand how things work in God. And you have Jesus, born of the Holy Spirit, obviously the Spirit of God within Him, belonged to, belonged to God, is God in the flesh, one with the Father. But there was an element here where He had laid down His divine privileges in order to take on humanity. And He said He did nothing of Himself. He only did what He heard his father say or what he saw his father do. But in this moment with John the Baptist, I want you to recognize something that happened. When he came up out of that water, and I mentioned that voice of the father spoke, John also said that he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus and land on him like a dove. You remember that? There we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all at work. But the way he described the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus is something we need to pay attention to. Because while we are also born of the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit wants to land on us also as well as be within us. He is within us. Every one of us have the fullness of the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of us. But He also wants to land on us. And here's what happened because the Holy Spirit landed upon Jesus. Jesus would step over into now ministry and manifestations of His Sonship that had never been seen up until this time. He had done no miracles. He had taught no messages. He had been the son of the living God throughout all of these years, and yet he had done none of the works. But now that the Holy Spirit had come upon him, all of that was changing. And he would go into action. And he would begin to do the miracles, signs and wonders, the teachings, the preachings, the healings, all of the things that he became known for and that drove the religious people out of their minds. The reason I bring that up is because we also are born of the same Spirit, but the Holy Spirit also descends and lands upon us 
so that we can demonstrate our sonship and our, our belonging to God in a more powerful way than we ever have. Now, Jesus lived perfectly and totally pure. We know that all through those early years. But something shifted, and something has to shift in us even now. And I find this continues to unwrap and unravel for us in a positive way. Where we see more facets of what he wants to do and what he can do as he's landed on us. And the more that we walk with him, the more of those manifestations become a part of the way we function. Unless we find a way to brush it off. And the Holy Spirit is not allowed to do what He does. In some places, Scripture calls that grieving the Holy Spirit. And people have done that. doesn't mean God, the Holy Spirit leaves them. It just means this aspect of manifesting the presence and power of God in this way is going to be impeded. God doesn't leave you. You know, you've proved it, man. I have too. He, he just doesn't leave you alone. That's a good thing. He'll wear you out in a positive way. He won't let you go. So just let me remind you again, you are not defined by your mistakes. You're not defined by the things you've messed up. You know, you remember how many times, there's various times, Scripture says of our sin, God has made the commitment. He said, I will remember their sins no more. You know, what that tells us is that if, if we have memories coming up and reminded of where we've messed up and feeling condemned and messed up because of those things, that's not God. God doesn't do that. No, that's why we have family. We have family for that reason. They're the ones that really... All right, all right, that's really not true, but some family feel like that is their assignment. No, you are, <laughs> I love you. You are defined by who God says you are. And who does God say you are? He says you're the righteousness of God in Christ. He said you are forgiven. You really are established. You are worthy. This is shocking to people because Satan just convinces so many people they're not worthy. That God will heal some, but he won't heal me because of all these reasons. I mean, I had somebody close to me on their, what turned out to be their deathbed. And it really was apparent that that's what was going to happen. Just a couple of weeks before they were, ended up passing and going on to heaven. But I remember I took this lady's hand and I wanted just to talk to her about the love of God again, and she knew the Lord. But I reminded her of some things. After she asked me this question, she said, Dennis, do you think I'll go to heaven? And I said, you know, I, I do think, I believe you will go to heaven. And here's why I believe that. Because you've believed in Jesus and believed He's the Lord. Isn't that true? You believe that He's Lord and, and that He's also Lord of your own life. You believe that. You still believe that, don't you? Oh, yes, I do. Well, the Bible's clear that if we believe that, then we would be saved, that we would have heaven as our home. And I said, but it's not really important right now what I believe. What's important is what you believe. You need to know that this is true. And then she said this. She followed it up with this when I made that statement. She said, but Dennis, I've done a lot of bad things. And she started in the same breath to recount things that she had done. And she had done some of these things decades ago. Things that she had stolen, things that she had said, things that she had mistreated people. And she went on with a list, and the list would have been longer if I hadn't stopped her. And I understood what she was doing. She was raised Catholic, and she felt like she needed to get this off. She needed to say this to somebody. But she really didn't. 
And I told her so. I said, you know, here's the thing. I understand all of those things are things that are true that happened. But from God's point of view, he said this. He said he would remember these things no more. He doesn't hold any of it against you. And so let me say this to you. Everything you've just listed to me is totally irrelevant to the real picture here. That has to settle in on a person. That has to remain because this is how Satan steals people's victory, steals their peace, steals any confidence, convinces them that God is not happy with them. Isn't that the feeling? I mean, that's what I felt before I really knew the Lord. God is certainly not happy with me. But that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not what we are against. And it's really not centered in what God is against. It's centered in what Jesus has done. Certainly there's plenty of things we understand that are not complementary or in harmony with how to live the way Jesus has taught us to live. And we're clear about that and not compromising it. And not soft on sin. That's not the point at all. But the point is people's sins from the past have continued to condemn them when Jesus said, not only did God so love the world, He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever might believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. He went on to say, He has not come to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. Glory to God. It's not about the condemnation of sin. It's about the righteousness that's available in Jesus. Does that make sense to you? First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 gives us some really clear words as to how God does define us. He says here, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Glory to God. Say it out loud. I'm chosen. I'm chosen. You see, some people really have lost the, the power of what that means. God didn't just get stuck with us. He picked us. He chose us. And because He chose us, He empowered us to be a royal, what he calls a royal priesthood, or some translations say kings and priests. Now this is big. Give me just a moment here to go through a little bit of information that might sound like it doesn't really fit right here, but man, it does to guys like me. Kings and priests. This is really a revelation that we really need to let God bring into our life. What it means to reign in life by Christ Jesus as a king, but also as a priest. There was a figure in the Bible that is largely misunderstood, I believe, a man named Melchizedek who in the book of Genesis was the man, he just has a brief section there in Genesis, just a few verses. But he's brought up again and for even more verses in the book of Hebrews chapter 7. But Abraham brought an offering, a tithe to Melchizedek, and he's described there as the king of Salem, which would later become Jerusalem. He was king, but his name also meant priest. He was the priest and king simultaneously. He was the picture of righteousness and literally the picture of the covenant that God would establish through Jesus. Now let me connect those two dots. Because nobody was allowed to be king and priest after Melchizedek until Jesus. There were kings, there were priests. One was never to cross over onto the other person's territory. 
And this is what got Saul into such huge trouble and it cost him his kingdom because he endeavored as king to do what only priests were commissioned to do. The reason that's important is because in Christ, who is the only one who established a kingship and a priesthood on earth that is eternal. After the order, this is what scripture says, after the order of Melchizedek. Remember those terms? It's kind of a weird way to say something in some ways, but really the order of Melchizedek was simply what I've described, that he was king and priest simultaneously. Nobody else was allowed to do that until Jesus. And Melchizedek was the picture of an eternal covenant. And that's what he was demonstrating by Scripture describing his, as him as someone who had no father or mother. Well, we know he had to have a father or mother. He didn't just drop out of the sky. And no, this wasn't an early manifestation of Jesus, and I've heard that, and I, I, I get it because they haven't thought it through. They didn't have a lineage on Melchizedek. And lineage was very important to all of the Hebrews. Everybody begot everybody. Somebody begot somebody, begot somebody, begot somebody. The Bible's full of begots. But there was no begot for Melchizedek. He had no begot. And if he wasn't begot, he had no buddy. They just didn't know who begot and who begot that ended up with begotting Melchizedek. But the purpose of understanding that is to realize that he was a picture of Jesus who would come and establish an eternal covenant that in Abraham's day was the shadow of the thing to come. Anyway, I love that stuff. I just had to squeeze that in somewhere. But you are a chosen generation. These are titles that were given to Israel as a nation that now has been given to you and me as believers. Chosen. Say it, I'm chosen. I'm royal priesthood. I'm a holy nation. I'm God's special possession. There was a time when all of those things only described Israel as a nation. But now that has been expanded in Jesus to include every person that would make Jesus the Lord of their life. Thank you, Jesus. That means you and me fit all of those titles or all of those descriptions that what God said of them, He says of you, chosen, royal priesthood, holy nation, special people, people for God's own possession. God wants you. He chose you. He is committed to you. He considers you His. You belong. You are family. And Satan can't steal that from you and don't allow it when he tries. Glory to God. That's good news any way you look at it. Thank you, Jesus. Now let me try to wrap up with something that you really can't wrap up with. But you came on Saturday night. This is an open-ended service. That's the risk that we all take. But one of the great pictures of this, and Scripture is loaded with examples of people who really didn't seem to have much going for them, that next thing you know, God just does things, anoints them, uses them, and they bring deliverance or miracles or supernatural things happen because they were blessed and anointed of God. The Bible is loaded with these pictures. And one of my favorites, and you get a lot of them as you study the Bible, but one of my favorites is found in the book of Judges chapter 6, where we've got the description of how the angel of the Lord appeared to a man named Gideon. A little history, I'll just give you as brief as I can make it. But after Joshua's conquering and leading Israel to conquer the land of promise, Israel failed to follow up on what Joshua's leadership had established for Israel. 
And they began to drift. And they lost their way. And they didn't maintain what God had done for them and done through them. And because they didn't maintain it, they began to come under oppression. What a picture that we need to pay attention to. But the oppression became so heavy that by the time you come to Gideon, there had been seven years of one particular people, the Midianites, with some associates with them, but primarily Midianites, that had so oppressed Israel, pilfered, stolen, destroyed, and done everything possible to annihilate or limit, at the very least, Israel's proliferation. That by the time Gideon's family had come along, Israelis were living in caves, not in the cities, not in the houses, not in the places provided, but they were literally hiding in caves for fear of these Midianites that would come periodically and just ravage the region. A far cry from where they had been as a nation just a few years earlier. Very sad commentary. And where you find Gideon in the very beginning of Judges 6, or where we first see Gideon, is as he is hiding from the Midianites in order to thresh out enough wheat grain in order to feed his family in a wine press. <clears throat> now, I've, I grew up in Los Angeles, so I did no winnowing of wheat whatsoever. I've never threshed wheat I've seen pictures. But you come to understand that a wine press, which I've also never been in personally, so I'm going to say this with great authority, <laughs> that a wine press is not the ideal place for removing the chaff from wheat because it is low and you want it up in the wind so that the chaff can be blown away. Is there any truth you think in that? Yes, that is how it goes. So he's hiding in a wine press, one of the worst places to thresh wheat, but there he is because he is fearful of the Midianites. Fear was driving the whole nation. Now, one of the greatest commands and most, most uh, frequent commands, if not the most frequent command from God throughout the Bible, is to not fear. Hundreds of times he says that to us. 365 is exactly right. And I appreciate the verification of what I was not even said yet. We're just so in tune. It's just like amazing. Three hundred and sixty-five times I've heard from authority. God's told us not to fear. And here the whole nation, and Gideon is a picture of it, is terrified of the Midianites. And it's against that backdrop that the angel shows up and he has something to say to Gideon that is crazy from its first sound. Gideon, the Lord is with you. You mighty man of courage and valor. Gideon didn't buy into what had just been said. He literally argued with an angel over that statement. You would think that somebody talking to an angel would have a little respect. He was so inundated with fear and so consumed with his pathetic identity he had identified so wholly and completely with defeat and destruction and fear and cave living that when the angel came with these magnificent words that defined Gideon in totally different terms than Gideon was ready for Gideon didn't receive it you got to watch it yourself we all do that we are so familiar with our pain, our story, our hardships, our compromises, our wrong mindsets. We're so familiar with those issues 
that we push back on these positive, powerful revelations that God has about us. And we literally disqualify ourselves from the power that's available. God doesn't disqualify you. We disqualify ourselves by this kind of ridiculous maintaining of a thought pattern that is not served us well yet and it's not going to serve you well now and this is what Gideon was doing and he argued with the angel and he said where are the miracles he later said where are the miracles that we've heard about why have why has God allowed all of this to happen to us and he said I'm from the weak weak family in one of the tribes, I'm in the weakest family in the tribe, and I am the least of the whole family. He was just telling this angel all the reasons why the angel was wrong. I don't have what it takes. This is what Satan does to people today, is he reminds you of your weakness. He doesn't ever play fair and so we don't need to play fair either. We just bounce back. Gideon didn't bounce back right away, but the angel did something phenomenal. This is so interesting. When the angel first said the words that he did, you mighty man of valor and courage, and you're a warrior and all the different terms you could use. And Gideon argued with that. The angel came back as if everything Gideon had said had not been said. And he simply leaped over all those words and only said, go in the power you have. Yeah. It's as if he had power. The angel knew it. Gideon didn't know it. He said, go in the power you have and you will deliver this nation. This is how God thinks. He is not dissuaded by your pathetic thinking. Right. <laughs> all right, that was so harsh. But I'm not taking it back. I could be talking to myself, but I didn't come to talk about myself. I came to talk about you, so it's your pathetic thinking. I know that. I've got to get past that flaw in the way I present some things. We need more love, Dennis. We need more kindness. All right, it's coming from Jesus. Gideon had so pushed back that you would think it would shut this whole process down. But you got to know this about God. You can be as pathetic as you've been. <laughs> okay, that was assuming some dark things. You can be as fearful as you've been, and God does not shut down. We still have to open. Gideon had to open to this. The mindset had to shift. It had to change. He had to take hold of a new definition of himself. It doesn't just happen because God sovereignly said this is the way it's going to be whether you like it or not. It's the way it is from his point of view. But we don't unlock the resources of power to see those words come to pass in our life until we make what he said what we also say and we receive the power of those words. Gideon ultimately received this and took hold of what the angel came to say and became the very man that God had defined in some very clear and brief words. This is how God defines you and defines me today. Just like land is defined by a latitude and longitude, we get the, the, the uh, definition, and that's just what it's called, the definition of a property by the longitude and latitude lines that are drawn, God has laid out a much less limited view of who we are. And we have to let the boundaries that we have maintained that have been so small and confined and limited, we have to let God's Word address those boundaries and blow them out in the name of Jesus. So that when they come, we take hold of them and we pull back on those thoughts. Oh, we know they come. Satan comes to remind you of who you've been. 
You've been a failure. You've been flawed. You've been divorced. You've been so many different things. And he'll go through a litany of things as long as we'll listen. And as long as we'll imagine those things and let those things define us again. We refuse it. We learn the habit of listening to the voice from above. This is what Jesus did. Hebrews 5.13 has become a real go-to for me, particularly from the message translation, which is a bit obscure, but this terminology is so powerful because he says there, he said, being acquainted with sonship, he was in the habit of hearing from above. And what he heard distanced him from what he suffered. That wasn't the suffering of the cross. This was the suffering of life under the pressure of the kingdom of darkness that he was not a part of but had to deal with. He had to deal with it just like we've had to deal with it. He was quite successful, obviously, every time. He never failed or faltered. But there was the suffering of dealing with the misunderstandings, the lies, the attitudes against him, all of the strategies of darkness to trip him up and steal from him. We see many of them detailed in Scripture, but many of them would have happened that we have no real detail for, but we know it was going on because the war was on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus was a central figure of that clash. Are you getting this? So he was in the habit of hearing from above. Even when Satan came at him with a variety of temptations and wrong thinking. And it distanced him from the pressure. That's the same thing that happens for us. The following verse, verse 9. I think it's verse 9. This was, that was verse 8 and then verse 9. In Hebrews 5, in the, message, in the mirror translation. Let's get it right, Dennis. Got all kinds of thoughts running through my head. But him having heard now positions us to hear what he has heard. And when we are positioned to hear what he has heard, we can have the same impact and results of what he heard that it distances us from the things that we suffer. Isn't that powerful? But we have to be in the habit of hearing from above, not hearing from below, not hearing from our own past. Now let me land on this one final verse that I want you to catch. This is so strong from Psalm 139. I was going to save this till tomorrow. So it's in tomorrow's notes. I'll use it again tomorrow. But let's bring up Psalm 130. Do you have the Passion Translation available? On the, do you know? We don't think so. So some say yes and some say no. But the, Let's go with them. The screen says yes. Psalm 139 and verse 5 in the Passion Translation. You've gone into my future. It's talking about God. You have gone into my future to prepare the way. And in kindness, you, you follow behind me to spare me from the harm of my past. With your hand of love upon my life, you impart blessing to me. I want that to settle in because God has gone to the days ahead and prepared a way for you and me to live the abundant life that Jesus came for us to live, but he's also gone into our past situations. It doesn't change the past, but what it does is it changes the impact that that past has to where it has no ability to harm us any longer. Isn't that rich? That's how we are redefined by Jesus. And the anointing has come here tonight for this redefining process where you are no longer defined by the world, by events, by hardships, 
by failures and all this list of things, but you are defined by God as chosen, as peace-filled, as faith-filled, as right and righteous in God's sight, that God has defined you in a way that will empower you to be all the things that he has said. We take hold of it. It's a rhema word to us. It unlocks power to live in the very things that we have chosen to receive from God. 